Welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Colossians. Colossians, a letter from Paul to the church of Colossae, offers a beautiful picture of who Christ is. With the knowledge of Christ's preeminence, we can face the external pressure on our faith. Paul encourages the reader to put on the new man and to let the knowledge of this newness in Christ guide every aspect of life. The series is presented by David Rushton. David has served for many years as the worship leader at Calvary Chapel, French Valley. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Colossians as we discover Christ in all. All right, good morning, everyone. Let's open up to Colossians chapter two as we continue in our study, Colossians, Christ in all. There are times when things, you know, are on my mind and I just can't shake it. They just keep coming back and it seems like it's the only thing that I can think about. And um, I work in automation. Um, and some days things just don't work the way they're supposed to. Equipment doesn't work the way you think that it should. And sometimes all you can do is read lines and lines of code trying to figure out, you know, wh where is the implementation falling short? And uh, if there are lingering problems at work, that comes home with me. And in my mind is just lines and lines of code. And if I close my eyes, I can literally see lines of code. I've had dreams of lines of code in my mind. And it's just like, ah, get out of there. Anyway, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, work, automation, that might seem not that important. Um, you know, there are other things that capture our mind that really are a big deal. Um, you know, financial situations or job opportunities or schooling or the future that we're leaving for our children. Those are things that, you know, sometimes do fill our mind and it's not necessarily a bad thing to be thinking on those and bringing them before the Lord. In our reading today in Colossians, Paul the Apostle, you know, he was no stranger to caring deeply about things. And in today's passage, he's going to express in a very emotional way something that he thinks about continually. And I hope by the end of today's teaching that we will all be stirred up to share the same kind of concern. So let's read the passage we're going to go over together and then we'll pray. So starting in Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Lord, we come before you this morning and uh, we read this passage and we're excited for what you have for us today. Lord, I thank you for sharing with me and showing to me many things about these passages, and I pray now that I could communicate them in a, a way that turns people to you and, and um, draws people into wanting a deeper faith and something more that you have to offer than they're already receiving. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So the section we're reading today, uh, this is the motivation of the whole letter of Colossians. Um, 
In the first chapter, Paul did a greeting, you know, it's a letter, so formal greetings and all that. And then he dove into a beautiful description of who Jesus is, his work of reconciliation, and what that should mean for us as believers, and it ended with Paul recognizing his task that God had given him. In Colossians 1.28, he said, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may, be, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul shows the reader how emotional of a task this is for him. He doesn't take this calling lightly. It's something he's really grasped onto, and it is who he is to share Christ with others. So let's start in uh, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. This phrase that Paul used, great conflict, uh, is translated differently in many Bibles. If you have a different translation, it probably uses a different word. Uh, there's words like struggle and fighting and contending and work and strive and contest. The point is that this conflict he's talking about is an active battle. It's something he's working at. It's not... Uh, well, the Greek word that's used here is where we get our English word agony from. You know, Paul agonizes over something. This isn't just him saying like, oh yeah, you know, I think about you guys all the time. But it's like he is, he is drawn to thinking about these things that we're going to cover. He agonizes the, over them in his spirit. And uh, he specifically says that he agonizes for those uh, in, for you, that's the Colossian church, and those in Laodicea, and for uh, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Remember that the, the church is in its infancy at the time that this letter was written, and that comes with many struggles. You know, the Romans were suspicious of them meeting in secret in their homes, and so that resulted in persecution, and many were killed. In previous teachings in this series, we've already talked about things like Gnosticism, and we'll touch on that a little more uh, as we continue. And then there's new believers at this time that, you know, are trying to integrate their traditional pagan understandings of faith and the universe into Christianity, which is totally incompatible. You know, but this continues to be true. This is true for the universal church, the body of Christ. Paul recognizes that, um, you know, there are certain parts of the body of Christ that are going to struggle in certain places that maybe others don't, right? So Christ taught his disciples and they were the first generation of believers, right? Uh, Matthew 28, 19, then Christ speaking, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So the disciples went out preaching the gospel to those who would listen and many churches were planted at this time because of their ministry. And these new believers then were the second generation of believers, those who received directly from the apostles and the disciples of Christ, uh, many of the books of the New Testament were written specifically to this group of people. And you can go and read something like Corinthians. Paul speaks so specifically about the things he experienced with them and what he, you know, he thinks of what they're doing. It's so personal is my point there. Eventually, these new believers, there was evangelists among them. And they went out and they taught other people. And they preached the gospel then to the third generation of believers. And this is the group that Paul is agonizing over because they have certain challenges that the first two groups don't have. 
in Coloss in the first chapter, Paul said, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, he's heard of the church of Colossians, but he'd never been there. I think we could identify most with this group, right? We weren't planted by Paul or by Peter or anything like that. We would be in this group of believers. Maybe we're not third generation. Maybe we're like 900th generation. I don't know how many. Maybe not that many. That's a lot of generations. You can calculate all that. Someone else can do that. I didn't do that. Later, yeah. The issue that this group of people has, I think, comes down to authority. On whose authority were they established? And we'll see as we continue reading that this opened the door for many people to come in and challenge the things that they believed, their doctrine and their theology, or suggest that they misunderstood something. And we'll come back to more of that as we continue. Paul starts to explain this conflict that he has in terms of what he wants for these believers. So let's continue in verse 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Firstly, his conflict is that he wants their hearts to be encouraged. And it says, being knit together in love. Paul wants the church in Colossae to know that their faith in Christ is proved through their actions. Their love for the church is proof that God is working in them and that Christ is in them. John 13, 35, Jesus speaking, it says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. More specifically, that the love that is so evident is what's knitting them together in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter that he wasn't the one that planted their church. God plants churches, and he can use anybody to do it, right? They are in fellowship with the body of Christ through their love for the church. It's not about who planted them. It's about the love that they have in Christ. Secondly, he wants them to attain all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. What he's saying here is that he wants them to see the richness of the faith that they were taught. That this faith isn't just, uh, you know, something shallow and it isn't lacking. They were taught the gospel of Jesus Christ in truth and faithfulness as he had expressed in the first chapter of Colossians. This richness that he's speaking of is born out of the fact that our faith isn't something mysterious or unknown. In fact, the exact opposite is true. We have the promise of understanding. In Psalm 119, 130, it says, The entrance of your word of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, that's not to say we're going to understand absolutely everything about our faith. There are things that are beyond human comprehension, things like the Trinity or what heaven is like, right? Um, but God has revealed himself and his love in the person of Jesus Christ. And his works were done in public. And moreover, they were written down and compiled into the book of the Bible that we have. God can be known. He's not mysterious or far off. His words were given to us. And by his revelation, we attain understanding, continuing in the verses we read, knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Paul uses this word mystery here almost as like an oxymoron. How can something be a mystery if you have full understanding of it, right? This is a jab at uh, the, the Gnosticism 
that we spoke about. The Gnostics suggested that there was some kind of mysterious knowledge that only they had, and you needed it to really understand God. And, and Paul's giving them a defense here against that heresy. There is no mystery. God has been revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God. The mystery is understood at this point. Moreover, it is God in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge, it says in verse 3. Knowledge of God comes only from God. So all those Gnostics who are coming into your church saying you're missing something or there's a mystery that you don't understand, just tell them to quit it. Let it lie. Just tell them, go away. But this is what Paul is agonizing over, is these things that we just talked about, that believers would misunderstand these things or that they would doubt their faith. In the next verse, he's going to tell us why this is on his mind so heavily. In um, verse 4, let's continue. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. <laughs> when I read this, these verses here, I get the sense of like somebody grabbing somebody by the shoulders and go, look, look at me. Are you listening? Don't miss what I'm about to say. This is really important, right? I, I just, that like captured my mind. Paul is like shaking somebody. <laughs> He's telling them these things because people are roaming around in churches misleading believers out of their faith or into unbelief. He's they're being misled or duped or tricked or bamboozled. You know, whatever word you want to use, people are coming by lying to them. And Paul warned the Ephesian church specifically about deceptions that would come from both outside and from within. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Again, in Paul's day, it was Gnostics or ascetics or philosophers in our day, it's things like open-mindedness and love and acceptance. Air quotes, super important there, right? But whether then or now, people are going to come around and try to deceive us. And Paul is acknowledging that they use persuasive words. So you have to be on guard. People have reasoned through and developed seemingly logical arguments for anything and everything whether they're trying to convince you that their totally depraved way of life is okay or is good, or whether they're trying to convince you that that $12.5 million plane is super important to the ministry of God, or that everyone in the last 2,000 years has misunderstood the original Greek that's used here in this Bible, and they're really the only ones who have it figured out. When I was reading and preparing this, Jehovah's Witnesses kept popping up, and then on Friday, and I live in the middle of nowhere, mind you, a Jehovah's Witness popped up at my door. And I was like, <laughs> and she was like, do you read your Bible and pray? And I was like, yes. And in my mind, I was like, do you? <laughs> but anyway, she left and, and Jamie and I were like, what the heck? I mean, I'm serious. We live in the middle of nowhere. So that was very weird. Okay. Paul is saying here, you know, don't buy it. And at the end of the day, don't let it bother you that these people are coming around. Just, just don't buy into it. Specifically for the per, uh, churches being planted at the time, he's saying don't let any, anyone convince you along the lines of like, well, you don't know Paul. 
Paul would have said blah, 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 or Paul would have told you this or that. That'd be like someone coming in here and saying, uh, Chuck Smith didn't plant this church. Oh, that explains it. Yeah, he taught, insert heresy here, or he thought you should do things this way. It's like, should we remove Calvary Chapel from our name just because Chuck Smith wasn't here? No. And should the Colossian church just be believing in some passerby's like controversial opinion just because Paul wasn't there himself to defend it? No, Paul is saying, so what if I'm not with you there in the flesh? I've already told you that we're knit together by our love. And I'm with you here in the spirit and not just with you, but rejoicing with you because I see that you've received the gospel and that your faith is steadfast in Christ. I love this encouragement that he gave. And Paul offers this wonderful encouragement of fellowship and unity, but he knows that the pressure's not going to let up. So he's going to follow this up in verses 6 and 7 with some practical application. And we should, we should really dig into this and think about how does all of this apply to the modern church with our modern problems, knowing that Ecclesiastes, I think, says that there's nothing new under the sun, right? What he's talking about here is exactly what we're dealing with now, though it wears different clothes. And I hope we realize, again, that the body of Christ will be dealing with this until we're called home. So it's not Gnosticism or asceticism, but many churches are selling out to modern philosophies. And maybe there's not people asking if Paul himself planted our church, but the largest denomination in the world seems to care a lot about whether Peter was the first pope or not and whether you follow his, you know, exact line of the Roman Catholic Church and all Protestants are heretics. And anyway, that wasn't my notes. Okay. So we need to be on guard against deception, false teaching, and false doctrine, both or all individually, ourselves, but also as, you know, a church that gathers here together and also as the universal church. The whole body of Christ together needs to be on guard. So how do we guard ourselves? Glad you asked. Verse 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Paul starts by saying, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Paul's reiterating here that, uh, you know, they were taught faithfully, so they have received the gospel and that they should continue walking in it. Uh, they didn't miss something that they should have known. There isn't some secret knowledge that other men have to offer. And, you know, when I read that and thinking about how Paul would relate this to the early church, I thought about what added advantages do we have? We need to be careful about people who are coming around in the church and what they're teaching. And while we don't have, you know, someone like Paul the Apostle put, to put their stamp of approval on anything anybody might say, we have this that the Colossian church didn't have. Many early churches didn't have copies of scripture. If they did, they had one that stayed in the building or in somebody's home and, and nobody could just go read it whenever they felt like it. But we do. We have the word of God. And that means it's our duty then to make sure that what we're hearing lines up with God's word. They, the Colossian church, received Christ through teachers coming and planting churches. 
And while that still happens today, again, we have the ability to look up what men are saying in God's word. Randy already said it. That means we have to read our Bible every day so that we know when people are speaking crazy. So ensure that you are receiving, uh, sorry, lost my spot. Okay. This means that it's your duty then to ensure that what you are receiving is biblically based. You know, the fact of the matter is there's lots of churches out there teaching all sorts of things. And it's up to you to choose to sit there and listen to it or not. Against the line of God's word, you know, maybe the Holy Spirit would tell you to speak to that church and to <laughs> tell them where they're wrong. Maybe write them a letter. But, um, oh my gosh, I'm... I'm teasing pastor with that, and I should have just never said it. Um, maybe the Holy Spirit would guide you in that, but at the end of the day, you know, he might just tell you, leave. Don't, don't bother sitting there. Don't listen to that anymore. You can't convince anybody there that, you know, whether they're on the mark or not. So just, just move on. And that is your duty, is to move on from that. But once you've found a church that's biblically, biblically based and, you know, we try our hardest to be, then you ought to walk there and be involved there and to walk in that faith that you're sharing. Don't let others come and tell you that God is different than how he's revealed himself in his word, right? Just because the Bible is 2,000 years old doesn't mean that it doesn't have any bearing on culture today. And just because someone takes some verse out of context doesn't mean that what they're saying to you is true. So this is the first thing that Paul teaches us to guard ourselves against these false teachers coming in, and that is to receive Christ Jesus the Lord. If you're a believer, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And I want to take a moment to, to pause on that phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord, and understand what this means for believers both then and now. In the New Testament, this phrase is used over a hundred times, 106, I think, is what I counted, and it speaks to the entirety of who Jesus is and what that should mean for us. Christ, the first word there, is speaking of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. When you become a believer, you are proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, or the liberator. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it's written, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is one of hundreds of prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. And Peter, when speaking to uh, the centurion Cornelius, he makes it clear that those prophecies were about Jesus. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, to him, that being Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus is the second speaking of the historical man. When you become a believer, you are acknowledging the historical person that Jesus was, that the Son of God manifested into flesh and blood and walked on this earth and lived a human life. And then finally, Christ Jesus the Lord, speaking of his authority. When you become a believer, you are professing that he is sovereign over all. And that means 
that your will is forfeit in preference of his, that he has control over every thought and desire. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Paul tells those who have received Christ Jesus to the Lord to walk in him, it's in light of these things, that he is the Messiah, that he was a true man, and that he is in charge over our lives. Paul's going to continue now, uh, continuing in verse 7, rooted and built up in him. The second thing that Paul tells us to do to guard ourselves is to be rooted in Jesus. You guard yourself from false teaching and doctrine by ensuring that you have a strong foundation. In Jeremiah chapter 7, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Jesus shared a parable about a sower sowing seeds. Seed that fell anywhere but on fertile soil were either eaten up or they were scorched by the sun or choked by thorns and weeds. We need to let the word of God land in our hearts and grow deep roots. So when times of trial of any kind come, we can stand strong on his word and sure of his promises. So let us be confident in his word that false teaching would have no place of entry, but stopped before even entering our hearts. And on this firm foundation of his word, we are to be built up in him, which is the third thing, to be built up in Jesus, meaning our lives should be set in accordance with his, with his will for us. In the Psalms and in Isaiah, God speaks of a cornerstone, Isaiah chapter 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. A cornerstone is the first stone laid down on a foundation when they go to build a building, and it determines the, the direction and orientation of the whole thing. And in 1 Peter, we're told that we are living stones being built up in Christ Jesus, who is the cornerstone. So we should let our lives be directed by his will, walking daily in his promises, that can't be mis so we can't be misled down the various paths that would take our minds off of him. Next, Paul tells us to be established in the faith as you have been taught. Uh, in verse 7, uh, let me find it. Established in the faith as you have been taught. Again, he is affirming that the teaching that they received was sound. And this is the fourth thing that we want to guard ourselves against false teaching, to be established in the faith. Being established is speaking to growing in maturity, expanding our spiritual understanding of the things of God. Ephesians chapter four says, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. All these things rooting and building and establishing, they go hand in hand. As we read God's word and let it speak to the deepest parts of us, our roots will grow deeper. And as we let his word affect us to lead us and guide us, our lives will be set according to his direction. 
And this leads over time to being established in a stronger faith as God reveals his truths to us and carries us through refining fire. And after all this, Paul tells us to be abounding in it with thanksgiving. A faith that is rooted, built up, and established in the knowledge of Christ Jesus the Lord, as taught in the word, will be the fulfillment of his promise in John chapter 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And how can an abundant life not lead to thankfulness, right? What else is there to do? You can't, I mean, if you're living the abundant life, there is nothing else other than being thankful. God offered his free gift of salvation, costly grace that was freely given. And as our faith grows, this mystery of his sacrifice on the cross that was revealed to us in the person of Christ Jesus is, is magnified. And, and, you know, maybe we don't understand it fully, but it means more to us as we continue in the faith. Christ Jesus, the Lord shed his own blood to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. There's been this song that I heard, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and I think I've listened to it like 6,000 times since then. And the opening line speaks directly to this. And it just hit me so hard right from the beginning. It says, come and see, look on this mystery, the Lord of the universe nailed to a tree, Christ our God spilling his holy blood, bowing in anguish his sacred head. This imagery that it uses of Christ and his sacredness and his his holiness, the Lord of the universe, the creator, and juxtapose against being nailed to a tree and bowing his head and giving up his life. It hit me so hard. Just this mystery, this idea of, of Jesus Christ, who, you know, in our last teaching in Colossians, we talked about what Paul, who Paul said Jesus was, that he is the image of the invisible God, and that he is before all things, that he is first in all things, and in all things he has the preeminence, and he came as a man and was nailed to a tree for our sins. And this is the fifth thing to stay on guard against false teaching, is to live abundantly in thankfulness according to this truth. Thankfulness itself is a guard against deception. Remaining thankful to God in all circumstances will continually bring us back to his word and to his promises. And that leads to deepening our roots, which then leads to being built up in him, which establishes our faith further. And it's this whole circle, right? You can, it's like, where do you start? chicken the egg type thing. You got to start somewhere, but thankfulness is what's going to lead us back around the circle to continue to grow deeper into our faith. Paul's great conflict for believers is that they'll be led away from the truth, from the love that binds us together, and from the riches that come from understanding Christ according to the word. And we need to guard ourselves against that deception Again, by starting with receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. It has to start there. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then none of the rest of this even makes any sense. So start by believing. And then next, you root yourself in his word. You build your life according to his will. And you establish your faith in him. And you live the abundant life that he promised in thankfulness. So going back to what we started with today this idea of really caring about something or something that comes back onto our mind over and over again, this is what Paul keeps coming back to. And it's his great concern for all believers. 
And it should be ours too. I found it interesting that in, um, in the announcements earlier, and I think also during the offering, um, Randy spoke both times about prayer and being more in prayer. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. His soul is agonizing over these believers who deal with this particular challenge and that draws him into prayer for these believers. And while we've covered this from the perspective of what Paul has to teach us in guarding ourselves against false teaching, I think it should also speak to us in a way to share Paul's concern with other believers, to look on others and to be coming into earnest prayer for their faith, that they would not be deceived by the persuasive words of those around us. You know, you can, you can talk to family members or to friends who, you know, maybe they mean well with their love and acceptance talk, but they're, they're so deceived away from knowing that, you know, God is the creator and he made you the way that he made you. And he said that sin is sin and you can't accept sin. And that isn't unloving or unaccepting to say, I'm sorry, that doesn't line up with God's word. I can't say that's a good thing. But so many Christians, whole denominations are proclaiming that, you know, God is love. And how could love judge? And how could love talk about hell and, and wrath and these kinds of things, right? I remember watching the progression of a particular denomination going years back where um, that song, In Christ Alone, in the second verse, it talks about how in Jesus, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they said, you know what? It's kind of hard to talk about the wrath of God. So I think we're going to not sing that verse anymore because they're liturgical and their central um, group decides all that stuff. And they stopped singing about the wrath of God. And, uh, you know, some people were kind of upset about it, but it kind of just lied. It wasn't four years later where they were ordaining openly gay and lesbian pastors and trans people and, you know, refusing to accept that God is who he said he was and instead substituting it with something lacking just leads us down to utter depravity. Things that are so contrary to creation and the way God set things and, and going back to my point, you know, there are people who are going to tell you that it's, it's loving and accepting to say that, oh, uh, love covers a multitude of sins and, you know, grace can cover over anything. That's true. Christ died on the cross to save us from our sin. But that doesn't mean that sin isn't sin, right? Jesus came to the earth because he loved us. But then he told everyone he came in contact with to go and sin no more. He loves you, but he doesn't want you to continue in your lifestyle. None of that was in here. <laughs> oh, going back to what we talked about. All of this comes from that we should be in prayer for those who might be misled by these things. And that includes, you know, me and, and our pastors and the elders. Everyone we should be praying over because the words are persuasive. That's what Paul said. It's easy to be deceived by these things if you are not rooted in the word of God. And we should be spending more time in prayer. When I was young, like a teenager, me and my best friend at the time, we used to listen to this old preacher 
these like, it was, I think World War II, maybe a little bit after, Leonard Ravenhill. I loved this guy. He was so bold in the way he spoke. And um, lots of the things he said have stuck with me and continued with me into my adulthood. But one of the things that he said is that prayer is not preparation for the battle. It is the battle. How often are you drawn into earnest, agonizing prayer over other believers? Or for the lost, for that matter. And I can honestly say for myself, it's not enough. It's never enough. We have a tendency to focus so much on our own needs. But the church, the body of Christ, needs more prayer. Churches need to be bolder about this, and believers need to be emboldened. And that only comes through prayer. Deceptive and persuasive words have been permitted for far too long in the church. And the only battle against that is more prayer. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about Christ in all through this study in the book of Colossians. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have questions or there's anything we can do to help you with that, please don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to connect with you is in prayer. So please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email at prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to give others hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.